New Dimensions Radio has been making a difference on our planet since 1973, thanks to the generosity of our listeners. You too can help make a difference with a tax-deductible donation or membership. Please visit our website, newdimensions.org, and just click the Donate button. We at New Dimensions thank you for your support. Hello, I'm Justine Willis-Toms. Today I'm hosting Anton Schwartz, and he's the son of the famous Tony Schwartz, who was a media genius, a philosopher of the new communication environment, and the author of the now-republished The Responsive Chord, How Media Manipulate You, What You Buy, Who You Vote For, and How You Think. Anton, welcome to the New Dimensions Cafe. Thank you, Justine. It's a pleasure to be here. It's a pleasure to have you. I'd like to have you tell us a little bit about your father's work in advertising, because that's important to all of us. There are some people that are about the hard sell, some about the soft sell, but your father went for the deep sell. Describe that for us. Sure. My father was an advertising pioneer. He's often spoken of that way. And the reason for that is that he wasn't trained in advertising or anything. He got into it through a circuitous path that maybe we'll wind up talking about. But he wound up seeing things very differently than the conventional wisdom in advertising had. He had come through it through a background of audio recording and interviewing people and coming to understand how they react to sounds and to pictures uh, as well. He was also trained as a graphic designer. And he found that the predominant wisdom that was in the advertising community of the time was that you have to have a central message to get across. You have to have, you know, one benefit to associate with your product, a primary selling proposition, and then you want the listener to hear that and remember it. And the notion of advertising was very much based on conveying information to the the listener or to the reader or the watcher of TV and then having them retain that information. And he thought that that was hogwash. He wasn't afraid of saying it. He thought that it was it was a very reasonable way to think in a print-based world, but in a world that was now subsumed by radio and television. And nowadays, today, we can add to that by mobile communications, by social media, by digital information, that the information travels and is responded to so quickly that really... The primary phenomenon that's going on in advertising is not the content of a message that's going out there, but it's the effect that it has on the receiver of the message, on the the person sitting at home watching TV, and that the meaning of the message is not the information that's conveyed by uh, the message itself in some objective sense. Rather, it's the dance, it's the interaction, the participation of the listener or the viewer and what they bring to the table in terms of their emotions and their pre-existing knowledge and their associations. And that the conveying of a message is really a much deeper and more complex process than is given credit for. A hard sell is telling someone, you know, you need to buy this product, this antacid, because it works better than the other three on the market. Or, you know, if a soft sell is sort of a more 
gentle, more Socratic way of uh, approaching that same kind of message. What he called the deep sell was to give a message that might not explicitly say what you're trying to convince the person to do at all, but rather just to make them think about the subject and to come to the conclusion by themselves, which is, as you say, so important for us all these days because we're constantly putting out messages on social media, on Twitter, on our, our resume, on LinkedIn. And anyone who tries to say, you should hire me for my next job, I'm this, I'm this, I'm this, you know, will not do that well. And anyone who says, wow, you should have me as a boyfriend or as a girlfriend because I'm such and such, right, is totally missing. The so what you're saying in those two examples, let's say, so you're selling yourself as a, as a girlfriend of someone, it's, it's not like, okay, I'm going to present, here's who I am, and I'm just this wonderful person. But the way your father would look at it would be like, what is that guy looking for? What, because when I present myself, he's going to bring who he is to this conversation. Mm -hmm. So it's being aware that it is a, it's a two-way street. It's not just my pouring out information to someone else. Yeah, and that's really visible in the world of you know, dating and social interaction because we instinctively know that you're just not going to fall for someone who shows up at a date with a resume on the table of all the reasons why they'll be a great marital partner, right? No, what certainly the socially successful people instinctively know that, you know, what does well is just sparking interactions in the other person, making the person laugh, not telling them, hey, you need to, you know, hey, baby, you need to go out with me, but just doing things and, you know, make them think to themselves, wow, you know, I feel good when I'm around this person. That's it. That's I want it. more of that. And that's the way he approached advertising. And he did advertise in many corporations, hundreds of corporations, hundreds of political ads. He he a lot of social services to different organizations, nonprofits. He did the, some of the first viral marketing. I loved it when he did, like, this is back in the, I think, 60s, where he got all these people to save a school that was right there in your neighborhood. Right. Yeah, I think that was in the 70s. The 70s, right. you know. Uh, John Jay College of Criminal Justice. New York had vowed to prioritize the police force, and yet John Jay College, which was the only institution that trained the police and firemen, was being voted out of existence for the sake of the budget, right? And he brought this to the attention of people, and he didn't have to say, you know, we all need to save the college and do this. He would just present the situation and let everyone come to their own realization of why it's so important that we need to have people out there who are trained at what they do, you know, protecting the city. And then at the end, he would say, you know, and if you feel the same way a lot of other people do about this issue, you might want to call these people. <laughs> and he would give the phone number of, you know, the city councilor. And immediately the, the vote was changed from unanimously against the school to unanimously in favor of. That's great. And another thing that I know your father was not a fan of, and that's 
jingles. Didn't yeah, for him, jingles were in the category of sort of high production value stuff that was just extraneous to the process of deep communication. He would do stuff on a very low budget that was simple. Yeah, I mean, it looked good. It was clean and, you know, and well done from an audio perspective and video. But he just thought all the big high ticket things that are trying to present a certain kind of image and, and a jingle to help you remember the name of... Oh, right. He, he compared a jingle to a what was it, to a nose cold or something that, oh, you know, right. you can't get rid of it and it just keeps running. <laughs> <laughs> um, right. It's but, contagious, right? Yeah. yeah. Right. But I think that the main point is that he approached advertising in a way that really had deep respect for the person who is receiving it. And sometimes I think in this day and age, you don't get that with every ad. Some of them feel silly or degrading or, well, I can think of one recently that got into big trouble. This was a Pepsi ad with that- With Kendall Jenner? Yes, that co-opted or trivialized Black Lives Matter. And yeah, they, that was a real misstep. That was a misstep. But the good thing that they did was they apologized they for it. it. That was refreshing. It is very refreshing. It reminds me of the Tylenol case where they found cyanide in a few of the capsules. And it was a big news story. And Tylenol took the big hit and pulled all their medications from the shelf across the country. It was a huge hit, but it gave everyone so much trust in Tylenol compared right. to like Volkswagen with the emissions cheating scandal right. and so many other scandals these days where people try to cover it up. And, you know, they say the cover up is worse than the crime. Right. You know, there's an ad that I'm thinking of right now, and I don't know if your father was responsible for it, but it seems like it's his genre. It was an ad many, many, many years ago, and it was for Alka-Seltzer. I remember it so specifically because it shows this man in his den, and he's just sniffing, and he's got his little toddy next to him, and he's all bundled up. And the punchline was, Alka-Seltzer will help you to feel as good as you possibly can on the inside when you're trying to look as bad as you possibly can on the outside. And I thought, isn't that true, that when people need an excuse to take a time out, Alka-Seltzer can make you feel good, but you get this time out. You, yeah, you know, and it's, it, it's, a, it's a deep message. I thought you were going toward... I can't believe I ate the whole thing. <laughs> right. That's um, another one. Yeah. You know, there are real pieces of brilliance smattered in the, you know, the earlier days. There's of, some truth telling, you know, within it. And that's yeah, what... And people resonate with the truth. Right. They really do. Another thing, he did a lot of sound work. And I know that he went around the neighborhood. This is early on, like in the, in the 50s and 60s. And he was recording these precious sounds out in the neighborhood, new boys and and vendors and taxicab drivers and all of that and it was a time of really being out in the streets and that's really shifted our culture has shifted slightly due to media that we're more indoors now yeah it's absolutely true and it's so refreshing to hear you say that because my father was actually an agoraphobic which is to say that he not only didn't like to travel. He had a phobia of travel. So he very, very, very seldom left New York. And he spent most of his life 
in, you know, one would say a five block radius of where he lived in Hell's Kitchen, where I grew up in the same house in Manhattan. He would travel around Manhattan outside of that, but he gained a reputation as somewhat of a hermit because people would come from all over the world to visit him. I mean, literally, the U.S. Information Agency would send groups of foreign dignitaries to his house, to my house, where I grew up, to be lectured by him. And, you know, politicians would come from all over the country. But like you say, he loved the neighborhood. He loved the people of the neighborhood. And he had a deep respect for people, for everyone. You know, he has hours and hours of communications that he recorded in conversation between him and Marshall McLuhan, for instance, and a lot of the great thinkers of the time. And yet they're on his shelves. Now they're at the Library of Congress, who acquired all this stuff, right next to the shoeshine guy who was telling stories about the first time he came to New York in his very colorful accent and, you know, next to the tapes of the children singing jump rope songs. And he was a huge appreciator of the great value and the depth of everyday experience. So he did uh, about a dozen records on folkways, uh-huh. which was then acquired by the Smithsonian Institution, yes. so they're available there. Yes. And he also did a weekly radio show for 31 years, 45 through 76 for WNYC. And a lot of those are available on WNYC. Well, I just want to make a note before we end that this book, The Response of Chord, first came out in 1973. Mm-hmm. And that was the year that we did our first broadcast. It was <laughs> 1973. And I know that my former partner, Michael Toms, was a total fan. This book was on his shelf right in the very beginning. So that he was a fan of your father's and really respected his work. So I just want to say that to you, Anton. Thank you. That's very meaningful. So I want to remind our listeners that I've been here with Anton Schwartz, and he is a son of Tony Schwartz, who was the author of... The Response of Chord, How Media Manipulate You, What You Buy, Who You Vote For, and How You Think. And if you want to know more about Anton Schwartz, who is, a, besides many other things, is a jazz musician, you can go to his website, that's antonjazz.com. And you can find out more about his father, Tony Schwartz, by going to his website. He still has posthumously a website, TonySchwartz.org. Or you can get to all of these through the New Dimensions website, NewDimensions.org. I'm Justine Willis-Toms. I want to thank you for joining us on the New Dimensions Cafe and invite you, please do join us again. You've been listening to the New Dimensions Cafe. This series of shorter interviews features many of the remarkable guests also featured on our internationally syndicated one-hour New Dimensions radio series. To access more than a thousand hours of programs, to subscribe to our newsletters, or to become a member, please visit us at newdimensions.org. New Dimensions Radio has been making a difference on our planet since 1973. 
thanks to the generosity of our listeners. You too can help make a difference with a tax-deductible donation or membership. Please visit our website, newdimensions.org, and just click the Donate button. We at New Dimensions thank you for your support.